Hey, what's up? Welcome to Build. This is Maggie. Today, I have a guest that I'm so excited about. I've been chasing Fareed Mosavat, the director of product at Slack, around for months trying to get him on the show. He finally came on, and we go deep into how to do onboarding well, what metrics matter, how to set up a team to do experiments. We get really, really deep into how they do that at Slack, which I'm super excited about, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, Fareed, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited. So I think the first question I have for you is, how did you make your way to Slack? Obviously, it's a company that so many of us hold up as a role model in terms of your products and the way that you guys build things. So I'm, I'm just curious to hear how you ended up there. I ended up here for a lot of the reasons that you describe. I've always wanted to work on products that I get excited about and things that I really love using. When I moved back out here to the Bay Area a few years ago, I was really on the search to work on something that I felt like would have lasting power, a product that would be around for maybe another 50 years or maybe longer than I was around. And I'd started using Slack for a couple of social communities as well as at work. And I just realized that it was so rare to be on a product that you used at work, that you liked, and that you used all day, every day. And I just felt like I had to work there. Even though I was super happy in my job, I was checking the job listings every now and then and trying to get connections. I ended up having a friend who worked here. I asked him about it and they had an opening on the growth team, which was really just getting off the ground. It really just gotten off the ground a few months earlier. And I felt like it was an opportunity where I could really bring something to the table and work on a product and be a part of something really meaningful. That's super interesting. What stage was Slack at when you joined? Like, were you already, you said the growth team was just getting off the ground, but was it already in that like hyper growth stage? Yeah, it certainly was. I mean, Slack was a household name in tech and Silicon Valley circles. We were probably close to 500 employees when I joined, with the product development being roughly half of that. We had made the transition to start building a meaningful sales team. It was a real company with a lot of attraction, but still growing incredibly fast. We are almost four to five times the size over just three years. Okay, so then you came in as growth. And I think the specific topic that I want to talk about is something that I'm pretty sure probably most product people have thought about or tried to work on or think that they should work on at some point, which is onboarding. So I've seen a bunch of companies treat onboarding, and I've definitely been a part of a team where we do an onboarding project and we say, okay, we did it. We did our onboarding. We kind of set it and forget it. How have you, especially in your role, handled that at Slack and and what does that process look like? We have a permanent team dedicated to onboarding. It's been called a bunch of different things, activation, new user experience, onboarding. But fundamentally, we have had a continuous set of people working on it for as long as I've been here and probably about a year earlier than that. And it's for a couple of reasons. One, we're trying to build something that isn't familiar to a lot of people. And so onboarding, like Stuart and the founding team really realized how important onboarding was from the day they launched it and realized that like it would be really important to get people into the product and get them understanding it quickly. I think the second thing that I've realized, and this has come from experience across a bunch of different products, is onboarding can't be done. And if you think about it, it's because your product doesn't live in a vacuum. These aren't just like scientific mathematical systems that once you get the ratios right and you get the experience right, everything works because you're interacting with real humans, right? Those humans change over time. They change because your product changes. 
And so what are you trying to onboarding people to changes over time? It changes because maybe your marketing and your positioning have changed and you want to make sure that it matches that. It changes because the environment changes, what products people use in their day-to-day is different, where they're coming from is different. I like to joke that like our earliest adopters were coming over with IRC or early internet chat as their familiar place. And nowadays, they're probably coming from WhatsApp, right? Or from iMessage as their familiar ground that they're bringing, the knowledge they're bringing to the table. It would be naive, I think, to assume that your onboarding for those customers would be exactly the same. So if you think about all the different dynamics that change, your audience becomes more international over time. It becomes less early adopters. You're maybe hitting new industries, different company sizes, different products they're using day to day. The world is changing around it. I like to use the analogy of we had a house in our neighborhood when I lived in Boston that no one had taken care of for like 30 years. And it's just a house. It should just sit there. But of course, like the plants start to grow in the windows, the mold starts to pile up. I think products are really the same way because the environment around you is changing all the time and you need to adapt your product constantly to match that environment. So I think onboarding is really for the for great companies, something that you really, if you're growing fast, you basically have to keep working on it forever. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I don't think I had thought about the way that you phase that out between, okay, you start with whoever the first group of customers who are coming into your business, but then as your business grows, that group of customers obviously becomes much more varied and different in terms of their stage, early adopter, a laggard, international, not international, all that kind of stuff. Have you segmented the work that your team does along those lines? Like, how do you handle all that complexity without it just being like this insane system? Right. So I think I think there's a approach you could take, which is like, okay, let's go towards hyper-personalization, right? Like let's learn as much as we can about every single customer and let's like hyper-personalize every single branch of it. I think some people do have success along that, but I'm a simpler person (laughs) and I think we try to take a much more singular approach. I think you can get this through a couple of different ways. One is just focus. Like who do you believe you're building for and what's the message you want to send for them? I think there's simplicity in nailing a broad message really, really well. We try to build for personas or ideas of people coming in. So maybe we're really trying to make sure that our onboarding is great for a non-technical person at a small company or a technical person at a large company. You know, It depends on where we are in the phase of our development. And we want it to work well for everyone else is a way to do it so that you don't get into the trap of hyper-personalization. I think we do, we are starting to think a little bit about like a little bit of branching. Hey, if you're a student versus a community group versus a big company versus a small company, there is work that we need to do to help you move to the right place for that. I think the other thing we do is we split our teams based on the major types of people that are new to Slack. And it's really simple. Like we have team creators, early teams, people who are trying to get the first Slack at their company off the ground. That we realize is a very, very different experience than someone joining an existing Slack team. We think about it as creators and joiners. And I think we're able to do a lot more dynamic thinking around the joiner side because joiners can be in a thousand person company, a 10 person company, the second joiner on a team, but creators are roughly all trying to solve the same problem. How do I get Slack off the ground for my small team of people and try and pilot it out? Some of that we do with teams and some of it we do just with focus hypotheses and themes that we're really trying to work on. So 
yeah, problems we're trying to solve. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think, especially when I talk to people who are maybe in growth or who are specifically working on this type of problem, I think so many people lean so hard into really getting this like insane set of metrics, instrumenting every single part of it, and like trying to do this crazy cohort analysis. I think it's amazing that at a company with the scale that Slack has, it's still so simple that you've been able to kind of crystallize or distill it down into those two really clear groups. And like I can already, just from hearing you talk about it, I can already feel sort of, okay, yeah, I know how I would think about that group or how I think about this group and like how those two things would be different. So is simplicity really like the core of keeping a handle on something that's that big? I don't know if it's the core of it. I, I mean, it certainly feels like it to me. And that might be because it's hard to keep teams aligned. It may be as much about the internal as it is about executing against the actual goals and metrics. But we go through a lot of depth. We know our numbers really well. We understand each step of the funnel, those kinds of things. At the end of the day, you're dealing with a human being who's trying to solve a problem at work. What is that problem? How do we help them get to that answer as quickly as possible? How do we help them understand our product and what's good about it and why it matters and why they should use it in all of the other options that they have in their day-to-day? How do we get you to that aha moment as quickly as possible? Those things are pretty universal. And honestly, like the people who already understand that are going to figure your product out. It's the folks that are on the marginal users, the ones who are sort of not the tire kickers, the ones who are just taking a quick look and are going to bounce no matter what. And it's not the core users, the ones who know what the problem they're trying to solve. They know that your product solves it. They're ready to go. It's the folks in the middle that we really want to make sure we're building for, right? The people who will try it if you get them there quickly. That's who we're building for. That's who we're thinking about. Oh, interesting. If you had to think about going and talking to another team who's maybe trying to work on onboarding at their own company, like what are the the sort of principles that your team has that you operate around? Sure. So the first is you have to understand how you're going to measure success. I'm not a pure data-driven product leader. I don't think in terms of anything that moves the numbers is good. But I do think you have to understand what output you're going for and how you're going to measure that. We want to measure two outputs. One is sort of thematic or qualitative. So for us, that's we want everyone to have a meaningful conversation in Slack on their first day. And then also, how are you going to measure that? And for us, that's by defining a really good activation metric. And so I think that's the second ingredient that's super important from a quantitative perspective. I think great activation metrics tend to be quick. So you do the activity quickly. They tend to be a reasonably low bar for activity. I think I've seen a lot of teams get into like, you do these 40 things in your first like 30 days as activation. And of course, that makes the retention of your activated users look really good, but most people never get there. I think what I'm looking for is a filter more than it is a sign of pure success, if that makes sense. So a kind of metric that filters out the people who never got it, but that everyone who's going to retain passes through it at some point in their first day. So for us, that's getting to three users, sending a few messages in the first day. And actually, these days, we're looking for three people who come back, who actually return on a second day in their first week, because to us, that's a sign that they got enough value that they wanted to check it out again. And it helps us understand if we're like driving a loop of behavior or not. So I think those are the two starting ingredients. What are you trying to do from just an experiential perspective? And what, how are you going to measure that? Like, what's the output you're trying to measure? How do you help your team? Just want to talk about experiments just really quickly. Assuming that you're in onboarding and kind of growth and that you're thinking about experiments you can run to kind of improve these the metrics that you're talking about. 
How do you help your team understand what makes a good experiment and how to know whether something might work and like how to prioritize those things? Because I, we also have a growth team and I think you actually talked to Matt and they run lots of experiments. But I know, especially when you have younger people who are coming in, how do you help them sort of understand that process? Great. So I start everything with one mantra that's become sort of one of my go-to phrases on our team, which is experimentation is a tool of humility, not decision-making. We do not want to use experiments as a way to throw a bunch of things at the wall, just try every option possible and see what works. We are trying to build great products. We are trying to approach it with the humility and understanding that we may be wrong. Um, and that we may not know everything there is to know without actually empirically trying it. We're building an enterprise product. We're building a product that people use at work, that they rely on every single day to get their jobs done. We have a responsibility to those customers to treat them with like a deep respect and to only put things in front of them that we believe in and that we believe are high quality. And so that bar raising on what it means to build a feature if you think about it, that means the investment we make in every experiment is pretty high. So we need to believe that it's going to have a high return. Like we're, again, humble about the fact that probably two out of three things we do don't work at all. But we only ship things that we believe are going to be, that we believe in and are going to be successful. I think a big part of that is starting with real, meaningful, ideally research-driven, or at least opinion-driven hypotheses about what behavior you're trying to change. So it's not just, hey, will this move the metric? Why will that move the metric? How do you understand it? How is it going to change the experience for customers? And we always start there. Like everything we do starts there. And so often I think of this, again, thematically. We're not trying to just try 50 things to move a metric. We're trying to experiment to build better experiences for our customers, but also to learn more. So we try to stay focused in a single area. Like we believe a thing. Let's try a few things in that direction, build conviction over time and go for it. So I always ask like new folks working on these areas, not to just here's 50 ideas, but like, how do these bucket up? How do these fit together? How does one of them teach you how to do the second one better? Like those are the kinds of lines of product development that I think work best for this kind of work. Yeah. And what I love about how you explain that is that everything kind of ties back to really simple, not easy, but definitely simple sort of statements and frameworks. Because I, I think the more I see growth here at Drift, and especially as my role changes, the more I understand why it's so important to have these really simple things that you can kind of talk about over and over again to help your team understand how to do it so that when you're not in the room, they're able to kind of remember the framework and apply it to whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. And so we try to build those feedback loops into our process, right? So we run a monthly meeting called the numbers review on every single one of our teams where every single thing you ship, no matter how small or how big the product and engineering teams and design teams are responsible for saying, what did you do? What did you believe was going to happen? What actually happened what are you going to do next? And I think that by building the discipline of answering those questions, it does two things. One, you're having a group discussion about what you learned. And I think more eyes on that sometimes helps you try something unique and interesting the next time. Two, I think it builds the discipline to make good decisions up front if you know you're going to need to close the loop later. I've seen a lot of product teams sort of get into the habit of like, oh, well, we don't have that experimentation or we forgot to like 
log that thing. Well, it worked okay. Let's just ship it. And I think if you know you're going to be that it's as much a part of your job to do that follow up as it is to ship the thing, you get into better habits and you build those habits into the earlier process, if that makes sense. And so I think like building, it's not just about being smart, it's about building the environment around your product development process that encourages that kind of thinking. I love that, which is a perfect segue because I'm curious to know how you got to where you are in your career. I obviously looked through your LinkedIn and I feel like you've been at like a who's who of tech startups. So I'm curious, like, what were the big inflection points in your career and how have you kind of gotten to the point where you are, you know, you have these frameworks and these processes kind of nailed down today? Yeah. So I think of my career as having a couple of major transitions and changes. So I studied computer science in college, like a lot of people in tech, and I actually studied computer graphics. And I graduated right after the first tech boom in 2001, 2002, January of 2002. The web was sort of not on my mind at all. And I was really interested in computer graphics. And I actually ended up at at Pixar after an internship there for almost seven years. And in a lot of ways, it was a dream job, right? It was the kind of thing that like people work their full career to get to. And I got lucky on an internship. It was super fun. I was working on, you know, movies you've probably watched and heard of and everybody understood that product. I think what I learned there was like, of course, a lot about creativity and building things across building simple products that lots of people can love that look beautiful and are incredible. And like everybody adds to it. But I think the main thing I realized was, it took a long time to do these things and the feedback loops are slow. I just started watching my friends building websites and working on the web again in like 2006. And I started reading Hacker News and like getting interested in startups and I wanted something different. I didn't really know why, but I knew that I wanted to try that. So I actually ended up, the big first big transition was quitting that job to move to Boston and join a game startup where a friend of mine from college was working and they would hire me. It was like basically the only startup that was willing to hire me. It was basically how it ended up happening. (laughs) It's amazing that you had to come all the way to Boston to do that. Well, you know, we had some family there and we were thinking about moving back east, but that was the folks that I met that I connected with. And it was a very lucky situation. And I learned it, that was like the classic startup experience. I started out working on like artist tools, like, cause that's how I got in was like working on animation tools, started doing, you know, as a classic startup, there were like eight to 10 of us started doing some server programming, started doing some web stuff, started doing some flash stuff. Eventually like the thing that was important was we started building social games on top of the Facebook platform and data became a really big part of our decision-making process. We started like instrumenting things. We started thinking about lean startup methods, experimentation, those kinds of things. And I ended up just being the guy who was responsible for building those things. So then I became the person reporting on how we were doing. And then I was the person writing the email every week to say, here's what I think we should do next based on what I've learned. And suddenly I found myself doing product management we got acquired by Zynga in 2010. And so the big next like transition was moving into that kind of data-driven product management role full-time. I realized that that was something that that company did incredibly well. It was doing something unique and new that I'd never even heard of before. And I wanted to be a part of that. I moved into product full-time in about 2010. I spent another two years at Zynga building new games and, and, and working on those things. And then from there, more startups worked at Runkeeper in Boston. But then... um. We realized we wanted to be back in the Bay Area. (laughs) So that was the next big transition. So it goes from film to startups 
from startups to product management. And then when I came back out here, I realized that I'd never worked at a company that was really in that hyper growth blitz scaling, like, oh my God, we're adding, we're doubling employee count every six months kind of stage. And there was a lot happening here at that time around 2012, 2013. For me, that was when I changed my perspective. I thought I wanted to be like a head of product, a product leader, but that's when I switched to just, I want to join companies I believe in. So I ended up at Instacart as an individual contributor PM. And then again here at Slack, because I was just trying to like be involved in things that I thought could be generational companies. And so that's how I ended up here. And a lot of the decisions I've made, you know, it's, are about, are actually really about the company and the product more than it is about my individual role. And I think that's why I've been able to be lucky to be involved in a lot of these really great things. Yeah, that's incredible. I, I have that conversation with a lot of classmates of mine when they're thinking about, okay, do I take that head of PM, VP of product role at a, at a random startup or a small company? Or do I join, you know, maybe a bigger, higher traction startup as more of an individual contributor or someone maybe not as high up? And it's interesting. I definitely had a, a decision I made like that before I came to Drift. And then I realized, actually, I just want to be part of a team that's winning. And I want to be part of a team that's doing an amazing job with a product I believe in, with a team that's focused on learning. And you join as an individual contributor and the rest kind of takes care of itself because you're excited about what you're doing. Yeah, I think my equation has always been, I want to bring something to the table that that company needs. And I want to learn something that I wouldn't be able to do anywhere else. And if those two ingredients are right, then the role doesn't really matter. (laughs) And if the people are great, if the product is something I'm proud of, I think I can do great work. I think of it as betting on myself. I know that if I am motivated and I care and I'm working hard, the material pieces, title, conversation, equity, whatever, like responsibility, leadership, management, all those things will, will come. But the only way that works is if you're in a growing organization that is uh, aligned with your own personal values. So as long as you have, you have to have those ingredients as well. Agree. But I also think that I wouldn't join a company that didn't align with with my personal values now that I've been at, at a couple of places where it really does align. And I think I just can't imagine sort of going back. No, I think it's because, look, especially product people tend to be ambitious, right? <laughs> they want to like be good at their jobs. And so you can probably succeed in any environment to some level right? You'll work hard. You'll try hard. You want to like, you know, achieve a lot of, you know, PMs are type A achiever types. But the downside is, and I think this is the thing that's really hard to know until you're in it, is that the amount of emotional energy you have to put into being successful in an environment that's not a fit is so much higher. And so while you might have the the sort of like measurable pieces of progress, you're going to be unhappier every single day. And I think it's the further you are from where you're normally aligned. I think that's an important thing to keep an eye on. It's just like, what energy do you bring every single day? Yeah, I love that. All right. So I have just two more questions. First one is books and reading. Are you reading anything or recommend anything to your team right now that you think is really interesting? The main book that I've read recently that I find really fascinating is a book called Creative Selection. And it's by a uh, engineer at Apple about 
you know, who worked on the iPhone and just the stories of working with Steve Jobs and what demoing looks like at that company and how they think about almost bottoms up innovation, but coupled with this very strong top down product leader. I've been finding really fascinating. I'm still in the middle of it, but I think there's a lot of mythology about Apple and it's cool to sort of break the seal on that and sort of actually see what it's like internally. It's not just, oh, like they have an idea and it comes from the top down and then you have to build it exactly that way. It's actually a very iterative process. It's just internally iterative. And I think people miss that when they think about Apple. So that's been fun. That's the main book I've been recommending. What about, do you, are you a podcast person? Okay. Well, I just got restarted. I listened to this podcast called Hardcore History. They're like these four and a half hour epic storytelling about different moments in world history. And they come out like every six or seven months. And it's just always a surprise in my feed when they pop up. So the latest episode of that about the Pacific theater of of World War II just came out. So I'm sort of an hour into that four-hour episode. So that's been fun. I've listened to the World War One series on that like two times. It's probably like 16 hours each time through. And that's just a fun thing. You do a half hour every single time I'm on my commute. The other thing I've been really interested in podcast-wise is um, there's this podcast called Invest Like the Best. It's by this guy who runs a quant value fund in New York. And it's been really interesting from that podcast and a couple others to hear how public market investors think about doing their job. I've never really understood anything about it. And it's very analytical and very quantitative and very structured in terms of frameworks. And so I've been learning a lot about like what it means to do structured framework-based thinking in an environment where like other really smart people, it's really zero sum with other smart people and how much discipline you have to have in decision-making to do that well. I don't think it's 100% applicable to startups and product development, but it's been interesting to see how refined those decision-making frameworks can be. Yeah, that's really interesting. Good recommendations. I love it when I get ones that I haven't had before. Yeah, I feel like everyone recommends Creativity, Inc. (laughs) Well, it's a great book. And it's actually, I mean, honestly, it reflects my experience there. So I actually think it's pretty real. I'm a little ABD, so I'm always recommending the thing I most recently read (laughs) that's just stuck with me. So yeah, I mean, we can go back to the classics. I mean, I think everybody should read High Output Management by Andy Grove. And I actually am really into the history of Silicon Valley and the history of technology. There's a book called What the Dormouse Said by John Markoff. That's all about the earliest days of Silicon Valley and sort of how it's the intersection of this like scientific Fairchild Raytheon old school defense contractor, you know, thing with like the sixties and the grateful dead and acid and how those were like both necessary ingredients of what was happening in Palo Alto and Berkeley in the earliest days. I love reading about that because it's just so fascinating to understand the reality of the shoulders we're standing on and what we're building. So. Yeah. And I think also just to get a glimpse into the kind of, the system that those people were in and like the actual forces that were at work. And that's not as obviously as simple as when you can kind of look back and create the perfect origin story for whatever technology is that you're looking at when really there's all this sort of serendipity that had to happen. Yeah. And so much of creativity and these amazing moments. I mean, think about how much of what we think about in modern technology was really invented in a five to 10 year short period. And those moments always seem to be happening when 
different ideas collide with each other. And so sometimes I worry that like, as we get deeper into, you know, tech and we all listen to the same podcasts and read the same books, follow the same people on Twitter, like where are those idea collisions going to come from when we're all looking at the same stuff? I worry about it for myself a lot. Thank you for taking the time to come on the show and chat with me. I really appreciate it. And I love your take on just keeping things simple, even though obviously user onboarding can be really complex. And I definitely, that the thing that we're talking about at the end, I really agree that it's really important to kind of look for inspiration outside of all the same things that everyone is doing, because that's how you keep your mind fresh and sort of continually understanding the human condition, which I think is so important as product people. So I love that. Personally, for me, if you look at the experience that I've had is like, I try never to do the same thing twice before, like something from the past that influences the new role that I'm going to take, but also be able to learn something new and just like push those ideas together. I worry a lot about specialization for myself. Like if I keep doing the same things over and over again, am I just going to be playing a playbook or am I going to learn and be creative and try new things? Yeah. I love that. That's good. It's good to hear that, that even, you know, in your role and at, your, at the stage in your career, you're still thinking about that. Yeah. It's no fun to do the same stuff over and over again, <laughs> at least for me. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. Well, Free, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate you taking time to chat with us. So thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. Thanks so much for listening. We have our first customer conference at Hypergrowth SF on November 18th. You can use my code BUILD99 for a discounted ticket at hypergrowth.drift.com. 